Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 579 with Keith Ferrazzi. I have been enjoying Keith's insights for many, many years from his book, Never Eat Alone, and then Who's Got Your Back? I purchased on the very day it released, fun fact. And now he's got some more juicy insights talking about how to grow your influence, lead without authority, cross networks and silos within organizations, and how that is done masterfully. So you'll learn, one, how leaders unknowingly alienate their teams, two, how silos came to be and how we can break them down, and three, an exercise for creating authentic connections with your team. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP579er. Don't actually type the ER on Niner. EP579 at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can access those resources. Here's Keith's story. Keith Ferrazzi is the founder and CEO of Ferrazzi Greenlight, a management consulting and team coaching company that works with many of the world's biggest corporations. A graduate of Harvard Business School, Ferrazzi rose to become the youngest CMO of a Fortune 500 company during his career at Deloitte and later became CMO of Starwood Hotels. He is a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Fortune, and the number one New York Times bestselling author of Who's Got Your Back and Never Eat Alone. His mission is to transform teams to help them transform the world. Big thanks to Keith for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorns securities llc member finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com here is Keith. Keith, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, I am looking forward to helping people be awesome and learning something too. Oh, me too. Well, so you are renowned as a as a connector. I'd love to hear, do you have a particularly favorite story associated with how a connection came to be? Wow. Oddly enough, in 53 years, I've never been asked that question. I love hearing that. <laughs> So, and I don't know if this is a great story or not, but it's so important that you get intentionality in your life around what you're trying to achieve and then start asking yourself, who would you want to get to know in order to try to achieve that and co-create great things with them? I remember years ago, I was uh, just out with Never Eat Alone. Oprah was, of course, the best thing since sliced bread in terms of advancing book sales. And I had been racking my brain about how I could get to Oprah. I, w- I was not a well-known dude at that time. I was well-known in the business world, but not in the, in the general world. And I was just passing by my, at a marketing's desk. And I had said something to uh, 
to her about how important it would be to really just think about getting on Oprah. And an intern who was only with us for about a month, off in the corner, piped up and said, oh, well, I don't know if it helps, but my aunt is Gail King. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that might be helpful. And it's amazing. <laughs> and it's like, the point is, if you don't get clear and you don't put it out there with abundance, then you're going to be missing opportunities because you never can know who knows who. I've also been in situations where I had mentioned on a podcast, I wanted to get to know so-and-so. And a high school kid reached out to me and did the work. He did the work in his network. He found his friends who had parents and blah, blah, blah. And ultimately, I got introduced to the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, which was the thing that I put out there. So again, you put it out there, it has a chance to, to manifest. That's really cool. That's really cool. And for those who have not watched Oprah lately, Gail King is her best friend that she references frequently. My best friend, Gail. <laughs> and that's wild. So, well, thank you. Well, so now your latest here is called Leading Without Authority. Can you kick us off by sharing the case for why that's important for professionals these days? Well, look, the world has really changed a lot in business. And it's interesting. In the last two to three months, there's been more solidification of the way we work and the future of work has happened in the last two to three months than have happened in 20 years. No question in my mind. And the ability today for anybody in an organization, right? Anybody in an organization to be a transformation agent, an agent of transformation is more available today than ever before. Now, I've always believed that anybody with a vision and audacity and a willingness to serve the people around them could achieve extraordinary things. I tell the story in, in Never Eat Alone about me in my 20s becoming the chief marketing officer of all of Deloitte, right? I mean, that was ridiculous. I didn't know it back then. It had to do with my capacity to lead without authority, to lead through a strong vision and a willingness to share the stage with other people who I co-created with until they named me the chief marketing officer because I had the vision that we wanted and needed to do that. Today, it's not only possible, it's mandatory. If most organizations are in real dire need of innovation, transformation, constant adaptability, and anybody who's listening to this, you can be the tipping point for transformation. Gandhi, one dude, was the tipping point of transformation. Uh, Martin Luther King, one dude, the tipping point of transformation. It is absolutely possible to be the tipping point of transformation, but you've got to lead a movement. And, and this book, Leading Without Authority, teaches you exactly how to do that. Well, well that's, that's exciting. Well, so you've mentioned a few examples yourself and some leaders of renown throughout history. Well, I'm not putting myself at yeah. par with Harriet how Tubman, <laughs> not at all. I'm just saying, no matter what kind of a movement you want to lead, whether it's a, it's a meager movement inside of your organization to transform the way you do business, or it's a social movement. It's all born of the same principles. Well, and could you share a story of someone who perhaps was frustrated? <laughs> they were banging their head against the wall, not getting much results in terms of trying to lead because they didn't have authority and if things weren't going anywhere and how they turned it around. In chapter one of the book, we meet Sandy. And Sandy is a lovely woman, a well-intentioned HR leader. She's not the top leader. In fact, she's kind of pissed off at the top leader because the top leader has said to her, Sandy, I want you to design a compensation system for the company as a whole. And by the way, these sales folks over here, they are running their own play and trying to create a compensation system unique to sales. Would you head that off for me, please? 
And then he disappears, right? Like the coward that he was. Because he, in reality, knew that he couldn't stop it. The head of sales in that company was more powerful than the head of HR. And the head of sales had created, like a lot of sales organizations do, a shadow HR function. And a lot of them do do pretty much what they wanted to do. So Sandy walks into the head of sales operations, a woman named Jane, and says, Jane, just want to let you know I'm creating this compensation system. Let's sit down so we can reconcile what you're doing with what I'm doing. And I can basically tell you how you should be doing it differently, right? And Jane's like, oh, thank you very much. And never invited her to any of Jane's meetings. And Sandy was like, well, wait a second. I'm been, I've been ordained as the head of compensation. Why aren't they letting me in these meetings? Because they didn't have to, right? Because Sandy didn't reproach in the right way. When I ultimately got a chance to talk to Sandy, I met her at a, at a conference that she had, uh, uh, had hounded me and said, I really want to meet you. I really want to have coffee with you. And I said, sure, sure, sure. Let's do it. So we had coffee and she's like, oh, I'm so exhausted. I think I came to the wrong company. I was very successful in where I was before. And I said, what's going on? She goes, well, this, she tells me the whole story about Jane and all of her frustration. And I said, well, how's your team? And she says, well, it's, they're exhausted too. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to keep them. Mm. How's your team? And she looked at me and she goes, well, I thought I just answered that question. Well, and, and I ultimately got to the point. I said, I said, Sandy, Jane is trying to build a compensation system. She's responsible for all of sales. Whether you like it or not, she's on your damn team. And you're being a really crappy leader. And it's it just, it was not in, in Sandy's framework that this person who she vilified and as obstinate and not compliant was actually a team member that she had to serve and she had to work with and she had to co-create with. Once she got herself pivoted around the fact that she was being indulgent and lazy and she needed to actually work with this person differently, she approached this person and this person not only came around, but they ended up being great partners. And what we found out subsequently was Jane was also embarrassed because the sales organization was not was not really playing ball with Jane, wasn't showing up to meetings either. And Jane was embarrassed. She needed a friend. She needed a partner. But the way that Sandy bound in there with policy and compliance at the forefront just alienated her. So it's a very important mm-hmm. story. And I think it's one we've all faced at some level or another. And her taking a very different mindset towards somebody that she had previously thought of as an adversary ultimately yielded extraordinary outcomes for both of them and the, and the company. Well, that is a great shift in mindset that can make a world of difference. And, and I guess you don't need to go into all the particulars of this individual example, but I'm really curious, like salespeople, you know, they want their fat commissions and their bonuses. And I don't even know how that squares with kind of global compensation system for a company. How did they crack that? Well, it was interesting. First of all, one of the things that the relationship made Sandy recognized is you're exactly right. There couldn't be a global compensation system. There had to be a global compensation system. It had to be both global global and, and local at the same time. And what they ended up doing is creating a beautiful model that had some basic principles that ended up being utilized by sales and at the same time cascaded out throughout the whole company. So this ended up being a model for all divisions to be able to use so that people could localize their needs. And look, all the head of HR wanted was to save money on a centralized HR compensation program and system. And he did that. He saved money and everybody sort of got their tweaks that they needed to make the program work. 
Beautiful. Well, so let's, let's talk a little bit about silos. I understand that that is sort of a big obstacle at times to pulling this off effectively, or at least we perceive it as such. I'm thinking about uh, Dan Heath's book, Upstream. He quoted repeatedly, every system is perfectly engineered to get the results that it gets. So can you orient us to what is the value of silos and how do they come to be and what do they serve? By the way, such smart questions. So silos came to be in the industrial era where everybody did something, you pass it on to the next person who did something, you pass it on to the next person, sort of the conveyor belt of, of business. And that worked until the 80s. And then in the 80s, IT systems came along. I don't know if you actually wanted this history, but IT systems came along and like SAP. And they started to create what's called the matrix, where in the olden days, Italy had everything they needed. They had their HR systems. They had their their banking. They had their marketing. They had their budgets. Everything happened in Italy. Italy and they sold their products in Italy. And then, you know, periodically, all the money would get scraped back from Italy and given to central headquarters, which would, you know, create the very small central functions. Well, when you when you had technology that could scrape the money every day, you had a more powerful CFO and a CFO function. You gained a more powerful chief marketing officer function. Policies, global policies sprung up and you had HR systems and supply chain systems. And people in Italy couldn't even order their damn pencils anymore. Everything was a matrix. There was the vertical P&L and then there was the functional matrix. The reality was everyone talked about the matrix, but matrix back then was nothing more than silos lied on their side. Still people, they still clung to who's got control at every interface. At every interface, the question was, who's accountable and who's got control? And they fought for it. They scraped for it. This is where I screwed up when I went to Starwood Hotels. So I had served my way using leading without authority. I served my way into a beautiful chief marketing officer job at Deloitte. Then I go over to Starwood and I'm given this amazing global job. And I walk in thinking that I'm the next best thing since sliced bread. And I think that I'm going to design this amazing global brand. And it didn't give respect to the head of Europe, who was running a very, very solid European marketing plan. But I scraped their dollars back and thought that it would be better to reallocate. No, look, I wanted to create a global consistent brand and all these things, but I could have Mm co-created with them. Instead, I clung and I leveraged the power and the authority I had in my matrix. Well, long and the short of it was we were both right and we should have been working together. And the head of Europe ended up becoming the CEO and just totally took my budget away as global head of marketing. And I decided this isn't a place that I wanted to work anymore. So the important lesson in all of this was that we've been fighting for too long. And the reality is you wake up today and work is done in a very different way. It's not even done in the matrix. It's done in a network. So everything that your listeners are trying to do in their lives professionally, they have a goal. It's a fuzzy vision. Maybe it's a distinct goal. And then they have a set of people, a network of people that they have to work with to get it done. That's a team. That is a team. And that's chapter one. Who's your team? And that was what I was trying to tell Sandy. Who's your team? We need to redefine certain things. There are mindsets that have been guided since the industrial era that we're, even though matrix happened, we've been clinging to old mindsets that for me to be transformational, I've got to control more. You do not have to control more. You have to influence more. You have to co-create more. 
And I believe very much in diversity and inclusion because I believe the diverse opinions inclusively offered will yield higher performing outcomes. It yields innovation. And so if you're leading a, a network of people and you're boldly getting their input, right? And you're boldly making big decisions with diverse and challenging insights, you're going to be transformational. Just a different way of leading. Your team doesn't exist in the way you thought of it anymore. Well, so it sounds like it all starts with changing a couple of your perspectives in terms of who's on your team and and, and how do you engage in, in leading. Tell us. Can I challenge that for a second? All right. So for Ozzy Greenlight, we study a bunch of stuff. We study, we study how people and leaders should act. And what I'm saying is leaders and people should act to manage in a network, not lead without authority. Mm-hmm. But the, how to get them to do it is another thing we study. How do you actually change behavior? And you don't change behavior by changing mindsets. I know that that sounds odd. There's a wonderful phrase I learned from AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't think your way into a new way of acting. You act your way into a new way of thinking. So if I want somebody to change a mindset, I change their practices. And one day at a time, we'll wake up and like, that works. That works. And the mindset changes. So you start with the practices. Okay. Well, then let's chat about some of those practices in terms of where would you recommend you start first, then second, then third? Yeah. Chapter one is who's your team. So there's a very distinct practice where you need to do what's called a relationship action plan. A relationship action plan literally walks through what are we trying to achieve? Who do we need to achieve it with? And then I even give details about how do you manage that on an ongoing basis with art, relationship quality scores, et cetera. So Really, number one, it's the practice of putting a relationship action plan together. The second practice is earning permission to lead. And I I defined a metric that I call porosity. Now, porosity, it's a word that exists. It doesn't exist in the way I use it. Porousness means how porous, absorptive. A sponge is very porous, right? A glass is less porous. Leaders have to make people porous. Leaders in the old day, if you led with authority, you didn't have to worry about porosity. You just had, you were a boss, you told somebody something. They absorbed it. That was their job. My job was to tell you, your job was to absorb it, right? So in the new world where you may or may not be telling somebody something that they have the interest or or the desire to absorb, you've got to work at getting it absorbed. And that's leadership. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole strategy called serve, share, and care. How do you let people know that your job is to serve them? How do you let people know that you are authentically a good human trying to be of service, that the vulnerability, the openness, a lot of Brene Brown's work, a lot of Amy Edmondson's work, our own research institute has gone into this stuff very deep. And then like, how do you really land that somebody believes that you care about their success? And there are practices and conversational tips and tactics and tools on on moving that forward. Once we're in, there's also lots of tactics around how do you how do you co-create? How do you, how do you collaborate? I think old school collaboration is broken. Old school collaboration was like, it was really more buy-in, which meant I came up with an idea and I'm going to sell you on it, right? Uh-huh. That's buy-in. Co-creation is I have a vision. Let's you and I wrestle this until we make it extraordinary, right? That's the world of innovation that we live in today. Uh, and that's what we need. So anyway, there's tons of chapters and each one has very distinct practices about how do you lead in a network? How do you lead when you don't have that authority? And by the way, that doesn't mean you're not a leader. 
You could be the president of a company and still need to lead without authority because there's always a set of individuals that will resist your idea if you try to foist it upon them, you know, with a traditional control and authority mindset. Sure thing. Well, let's dig into some of these tools, tips, tactics associated with how you really get across that you care about someone and you are trying to serve them and their interests. Yeah. Empathy is critical. Creating empathy between two people is really critical. And think of it as empathy is a bridge from where you are now to a productive relationship. But what is the key that opens up empathy in its most accelerated path? Like what's the thing that would create empathy between the two of us in the most accelerated fashion? You want to take a stab at it? Well, I'm I'm guessing listening well. Yeah. By the way, great one. The fastest path to activating empathy is vulnerability because vulnerability creates us. Where you sit and where I sit, how do we create us? I'll give you a little practice. I'd be curious if you want to do this with me. There's a practice that I use at the beginning of meetings called sweet and sour, sweet and sour. What's going on right now in your life that's sweet and what's going on right now in your life that's sour? I like that a lot more than happy and crappy, for the record. It sounds a lot more professional and enjoyable. Did you come up with that or have you heard that about happy and crappy? My buddy Connor shared that with me. I think it's from camp or something. <laughs> That's funny. What's happy and what's crappy? I don't know. I kind of, I, I might even adopt that one. What's happy and crappy. By the way, I love that actually. I love happy and crappy. Okay, I totally dig it back. I don't like sweet and sour. It's happy and crappy. All right, well, we're, we're going to f- switch then. We're yeah. trade. <laughs> so happy and crappy. Either way, so I ha- what I'm happy about is I am happy about the book. I'm also happy that we had the book release is over and the exhaustion of four o'clock AM podcasts. Not that this is exhausting at a four four o'clock AM podcast, but I was doing those, right? So that I'm all happy about. Sour is is my is my son. I have two boys, got one at 12, one at 16. I got they're uh, very long protracted pregnancies. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they were foster children. And the 16-year-old, he's turned the corner in many ways, but he's making very bad choices, economic choices. And at a time when he doesn't have a job, he's not making good choices. And that would typically lead me to want to hold him accountable and restrict funding from him because of his very bad choices. And unfortunately, we're at a time when we're in a crisis and he has no sources of income. So I'm struggling to set boundaries and still be supportive. And it's very difficult for me. And I don't think I'm being a very good father. (laughs) So that's my sour. What's yours? Well, okay, I'll tell you. Well, I guess sweet and sour, right? So I think sweet, actually, hey, amidst the coronavirus pandemic, there has been a surge of enthusiasm for online learning. So I am seeing some actually pretty excellent growth in revenue and such. So, so that's pretty sweet. What's sour is, well, I'll tell you what first came to mind and then we'll discuss it afterwards. Well, at this moment, there is... In the U.S., a whole lot of unrest, protests, riots associated with the the murder of George Floyd and, you know, conversations about racism and police brutality. And it's, well, it just makes me sad when I read and I observe and I see the state of where we are and how difficult it can be to, to heal and transform. It just makes me sad. And I feel a little hopeless in terms of, I don't, I don't quite know for me, what I can do. Now, I think I might know what you're about to say, Keith, but you tell me. When we're talking about vulnerability, what I just shared 
is sour, but it's not particularly vulnerable to me. That's just something that I think all of us are kind of dealing with right now. Is that fair to say? It's Well, first of all, when you ask for this, different people have different natural proclivity of their own openness. So this is like, you know, when you ask somebody, what are you really, what are you really struggling with at work? You know, your boss asks you that. Well, I work too hard. So your answer is authentic. It's something you're struggling with. How you're internalizing it could be more vulnerable. You could be talking about a level of dull depression that you're having, difficult concentrating, et cetera. That could be more vulnerable. But yeah, I mean, the window of vulnerability is open to how you want to be. The reason I went personal and went more deeply personal is because I wanted to set a tone. And I could have gone more, right? I mean, I if I'm doing this with a group of my friends that know me for years, I would go more vulnerable on things. And sometimes in certain environments, you don't. But it's a start, right? That was a mm-hmm. start. And it does breed empathy. It does breed empathy. And then you you move from there. But we help teams. We help teams create this kind of relational connection as one of the elements. There are eight elements. We coach teams through eight elements of transformation. And we believe right now there is a very important opportunity for any member of a team or any leader of a team to recontract with a team, to reboot how a team's social contracts exist. So for instance, is there a social contract where we care about each other? Is there a social contract where I feel responsible for your success as I do my own? And that's a contract. Now, what's the practice that follows that contract up? Is there a contract that we're going to tell the truth in meetings? Or is there a contract that we're going to talk about each other's backs? Many teams have contracts to talk behind each other's backs. It's not written on some value statement on the wall, but it's what happens. I wrote all these up. We've done $2 million worth of research on how to apply these methodologies in a remote world. In a remote world, we find that you get a real degradation of trust and you get a degradation of vulnerability and you get, you become much more transactional. So a lot of this has to be more intentional. I put up a website, right? When all this happened, I put the $2 million worth of research studies up there. It's called virtualteamswin.com, virtualteamswin.com. And it has been very effective for people. And a part of it is a free contract that you can use to recontract with your team, a new set of social norms. Now, I do that for a living with teams. I go in and I recontract teams' social norms, and I coach them to adopt these behaviors. But I wanted to write a book to help anybody be able to do that. Mm-hmm. That was the intention of leading without authority. How do you go into a group of people and help them rewrite their social contracts so you can achieve extraordinary things together? Right. Well, and, 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 I'm, and I'm starting to see the pieces uh, coming together a little bit here. I see that vulnerability led to empathy powerfully as you've demonstrated. I guess I know what you're dealing with and I feel a closer connection to you as a result, but I don't yet know that you give a hoot (laughs) about me and what I'm trying to achieve from, from that alone. What comes next? So people are always talking about how do we get higher degrees of engagement in the workforce? Well, have them co-create with you. Most old leaders would just dictate. I, I love reaching out to people and saying, like I said earlier, Hey, you know, I've got an idea. But let's, let's wrestle this together because I think together we could come up with a solution that will really kick butt, right? So you got to get into a co-creation. Through the co-creation together, then you'll have even more time. You'll have more time to become deeper connected, right? 
continue to lead with that authenticity, lead with that sincerity, that generosity, be of service. If along the way, you have an opportunity to celebrate somebody in front of another person. Hey, I've been working with so-and-so. Gosh, you know, you know, she's just amazing. She's so smart. That is another way to show generosity. So I think of it as a DNA strand where being of service and being authentic keep intertwining with each other because the more vulnerable and authentic you are, the more people will open to you authentically and vulnerably back. The more you can learn about them, the more you can be of service. The more you be of service, the more time they give you. And together, the relationship creates loyalty. And I think this is true of all relationships, not even just work relationships. Well, and I'm curious if you're going about doing this sort of thing and you hit some roadblocks, some people just don't seem to be jiving with what you're trying to do. What are means of, of quickly diagnosing and correcting what's going on? Well, lots of advice in the book on this. One of the whole chapters is, is called It's All on You. And I come up with six, I call them six deadly excuses that we use to not work with people collaboratively. And a lot of it's because you bump up against a wall and someone's difficult or someone's obstinate or someone's distracted and you're like, oh, they should cooperate with me. They should collaborate with me. They don't, you know, it's like all on your terms. And so I twist it and I say, it's all on you. You know, sometimes you have to go 99.9% of the way to engage somebody before they start to move halfway toward you. But like with my son, when he first came into the house, I couldn't say, when you start acting like my son, I'll be your father. He'd be like, well, screw you. I don't want you to be my father anyway. And so I had to work 99.9% harder and, all, and on the way, I had to stay there and, and be vulnerable and trying to be the best dad I could be while he was saying, you will never be my father. And sometimes we have to do that in the workplace if we want to be high integrity leaders. What I think is most important is that we decide sometimes also when we need to walk away. If you can walk away, a lot of energy gets eroded when you are working your butt off to try to convert somebody that is a resistor, when you should be working to create outcomes with people who are desirous of getting outcomes with you. Because often the momentum of working with people who are desirous of getting outcomes with you will actually be the thing that you need to convert the naysayer. So don't spend too much time trying to intellectually convert the naysayer. You should be focusing as well on actually getting results. So a lot of the methodology of leading without authority is take some small wins and, and get them over the line as well. All right. Well, Keith, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, look, I mean, I'm, this was an eight-year passion project, and now I'm creating books. And just like yourself, I'm, I'm creating leadership courses, and I really do want people to be able to be extraordinary in this new world. I also just started a foundation called Go Forward to Work. And the principle of it is, we've done a lot of transformation in the last couple of months. I want people to go forward to work, not back to work. I want us to define what the future of work is, because I think it's alive and living right now in this time of crisis. And I want to document it. And I'm working with about 80 CHROs, some of the biggest companies in the world, to define what the practices of the future of work are today. Oh, cool. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, yeah. I think it was um, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. I think it was Emerson. But the principle is sticking to your guns too long is foolish, particularly if, uh, if you get more data and you get a better argument. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? 
Well, you know, I just started using technology in very different ways. I'm using Slack. I'm using Asana. I think it's so important. Uh, of course, Zoom has been extraordinary. I think it's so important for us to begin to be much more rigorous in our use of tools to support our business. And that's not traditionally been done. Even in big organizations, I don't see some of these tools being used for communications, for program management, for knowledge management, for process redefinition and management. There's great tools. So I would start using some of them. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect with folks and people quote it back to you frequently? I think it's a definition of all the work that I've done. It's always ask who. When you figure out where you want to go, you're trying to think about what you want to do, how you want to get there. There's a question that we under curate. And that question is who? Who do I need to do it with? And then all of our science and research helps you be, you know, extraordinary. It helps you be awesome at your job relative to that question, who, from a relational and collaborative standpoint. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? KeithFrazzi.com is probably the best. I'm very proud of a leadership course we just created there. You can get the book everywhere, but KeithFrazzi.com is a great place to start. I check my own Instagram too, if anybody wants to say hi. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. Have a vision for something that could be transformative in your workplace and identify the first person to bring in to the team to co-create that vision. And the wonderful thing about the first person you bring in to your team, you're actually bringing them into their team. Meaning this is a real co-creation. Don't hold this idea up as yours. It's yours and theirs. Go kick some butt and go be transformative. The next thing you know, you might end up rising up to be an executive at the company because of your transformation. Keith, this has been a treat. Thanks so much and keep on rocking. Pete, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. It's an honor. For me, the most striking thing about this exchange with Keith was when we did the sweet and sour or happy and crappy, if you prefer, back at Hobie Leadership Conferences, we used to uh, <laughs> be, get kind of silly with it. And we, we, we would say, what's tight and what's jacked up? <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. I was struck by just how bold and courageous and vulnerable he was there talking about his son. And... I thought that was a really cool example for how, when it comes to vulnerability, if you've you've read the research, you've heard, oh yeah, that's something I should do. Okay, I'm going to make some disclosures here that it's probably, odds are, if you have some natural self-protective cautious instincts, that you could go farther. I imagine you can set some basic ground rules for just what's wildly inappropriate to share in terms of a, a basic sense of I guess, sensibility and, and boundaries. I guess, for example, you might not say, I am terrified and believe that the vice president has made a horrible hiring mistake and I am woefully inadequately up to the challenge that's before me and I'm going to fail you all and get you all fired. Okay, so you might feel that. I'm, I'm guessing, I'm going to take a chance to chat with Keith, but I'm guessing he would say that's not ideal to share that. You might say, hey, I'm kind of nervous here because I don't have all the answers and we've got some unique challenges. And sometimes I, I frankly feel a, a little overwhelmed. I, I imagine you know that would be the better way to articulate that. But this is just my own speculation. Thoughts still in process here. So good provocations from Keith. I hope you dug it as well. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F579. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest. It is Ann Bogle. 
We've had her before, and this time she is talking about how to not overthink it. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.